Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to this week's episode of Model Real Radio. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here episode number 11 for Mono Real Radio as we, we continue down this railroad track that has been our Halloween marathon. And I couldn't be more excited to talk about the film that nearly killed Disney, Jackie. <laughs> I don't know why that excites you, but okay. Because this is, it's a controversial topic. You got a lot of people passionate about it. And because we are able, for the first time ever, to welcome our first in-studio guest, Pat Gessner. Hey guys, how you doing? Pat, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm really looking forward to talking about this movie. Pat has been a friend of ours for a long time. We met working in radio. Pat uh, has a number of projects that he works on, still doing commercial radio, The Shred Shack. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about uh, what what you do and, and give them some of your social media. That way they can jump on and follow you. I am uh, currently a DJ on 106.1 BLI. Uh, you can follow me at Pat Shred Shack. I also run Shred Shack Heavy Metal Entertainment, which does a bunch of podcasts and YouTube uh, videos and uh, interviews with bands. So um constantly doing stuff in front of a microphone and fittingly for halloween you have your 13 days of halloween on youtube i do which i always enjoy currently i'm, I'm not even finished with eight of them i'm probably going to turn this into a 13 days of halloween halloween slash november like thanksgiving ish maybe christmas possibly we'll see what happens <laughs> We have at least one film that we talked about that can cross over Halloween and Christmas, should you run late, Pat. Ooh. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I think that uh, we should just jump right into this because there's going to be an awful lot to talk about. So, Jack, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you have the honors of giving us the, the plot and the synopsis of The Black Cauldron. Okay, here goes nothing. The Black Cauldron is based on a book series, The Chronicles of Prydain. The film opens on Dalbin's cottage where he and his assistant pig keeper Taryn are making breakfast for Henwin the pig. Taryn does not understand why he needs to take care of a pig and dreams of the day where he will become a great warrior and fight in battle. Unbeknownst to Taryn, Henwin is actually an oracle who has a vision that the Horned King is coming for her to use her powers to locate the Black Cauldron, which will raise an army of undead warriors. Dalbin sends Taryn to take Henwin to safety at a hidden cottage, and while daydreaming of fighting the Horn King, Henwin is captured by the Horn King's dragons and taken off to his castle. In his search for Henwin, Taryn meets the hungry Gurgi, who joins Taryn in his search, but runs away at the first sign of trouble. Taryn sneaks into the castle to rescue Henwin alone, but is captured and thrown in the dungeon, where he meets his fellow captive, Princess Alanwe. They escape through the catacombs beneath the castle, where they find an ancient burial chamber of a king, and Taryn takes his magic sword. During their escape, Taryn and Alanwe also meet another prisoner, the minstrel Fluter Flam, and the three escape and reunite with Gurgi. The four continue to pursue Henwin and come across the kingdom of the Fair Folk, who have Henwin under their protection and promise to return her to Dalbin safely, so that Taryn and company can destroy the cauldron. One of the Fair Folk, Doli, attempts to help them find the cauldron and leads them to the Mars the marshes of Morva, where they meet three witches, and in exchange for the cauldron, Taryn must trade in the magic sword. Once the bargain is made, the witches reveal that the cauldron is indestructible. With the encouragement from his friends and his desires of becoming a great warrior, Taryn decides to, de to try and destroy the cauldron anyway, which is when the Horn King's soldiers catch up with the group and take them back to the castle. 
The Horn King uses the cauldron to raise the dead, and his cauldron-born army begins to pour out into the world until Gurgi sacrifices himself and jumps into the cauldron, destroying its powers. Thanks to Gurgi, Taran, Alanway, and Fluter escape the castle as it crumbles around them. The three witches come back to recover the Black Cauldron, and Taran persuades them to demonstrate their powers and revive Gurgi in exchange for the cauldron, forcing Taran to give up any chance he has of nego negotiating his magical warrior sword back. Gurgi's friendship means more than the sword, so the happy group goes to reunite with Dalbin, which Henwin, who has been returned safely, can see with her oracle powers. And if that does not make any sense, do not blame me, blame Jeffrey Katzenberg. <laughs> yes, it, it, in short order, that is the uh, that is the plot to the Black Cauldron. Um, I can tell you right now, like there's probably somebody like feverishly pushing their glasses up their noses, going like, "She missed so many crucial plot points and mispronounced everything." <laughs> yeah, well, this we we have to keep this under an hour, folks, or at least two an hour. Um, you know, I have a I have a lot of feelings about this movie. We talk about the script to start off, and the movie does a lot of things well in reality, but for as many things as it does well, it totally kamikazes the movie with what they do wrong. Agreed. And, and I think that the script is, at times, just very, very weak. I think it completely depends on the character. I feel like I'm watching three different movies and it's not just in the characters and the story. It's just everything about it is disconnected for me, even the animation, which I'm sure we're going to circle back to. Yeah. You know, it's there. I, what drives me nuts and, and it, I pick it apart in any movie that does it is the sloppy screenwriting or things that just really don't make any sort of sense. Like, for example, um, when Taryn is outside with Henwin and he's dreaming of being this warrior and uh, Dalbin comes out and they're talking about what it is that he's doing. And he's like, well, H uh, Henwin got dirty. Henwin's a pig, so... Yeah. Yeah, of course Henwin got dirty. And later on, when uh, Taryn and Gurgi are in the forest, and Gurgi is trying to describe Henwin, he literally describes a pig. Like, it could have been any pig. And and Taryn's like, that's Henwin! It's like, no, that's, that's every pig that ever existed. Right, snout, curly tail... Yeah, big ears. It's like, yeah, you didn't. There was no like characteristic that stood out that, like, you called to attention. Like, oh, the, you know, she's got the scar on her snout where it would have stood out to you. It's well, thinking about it logically though, there wasn't really anything on the outskirts that made Henwin any different than any other pick. I mean, she did have like noticeably long eyelashes. Right. I don't know if you caught that, but that's it. She's a pig. Really, the only thing about the eyelashes was, I feel, to distinguish that she's female. Yeah. Other than that, there was nothing about her aesthetic that would give any anything else away. Right. I mean, she's an oracle. Obviously, that makes her different, but we're not going to know that. A aesthetics of pigs, literally putting <laughs> swine before pearls here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think like that's like among like the, the least... Of my concerns with everything, again, like, when I say that it depends on the character, 
in terms of like how like I didn't love the script for everybody. Like everything the Horn King said was awesome. Yeah, I love the Horned King. Yes. And we'll, we'll talk about the characters. We'll really dissect them later. But you're right. I think of, of all the dialogue, he probably had the best one. But I, I also think it's because his dialogue fit his character. Yeah. You know, I, I felt that there were times where when Taryn spoke, I've used the phrase before, 101. So yeah. many of his lines are so vanilla. Like, you've just seen it and heard it a hundred times. There's very little script-wise that separates him from any character in any film whatsoever. He could have been anybody from anything. And he looks like Peter Pan. Yeah. But even from the jumping point of the movie, when it opens on Dalbin. You know, it's like you said with the dialogue, it's just very 101. They're not even talking to each other when you first meet them. They're in the same cottage. They're cooking Henwin's breakfast. But Dalvin is just kind of talking. Not really about anything, not to Taryn. There's not really a lot of exposition. He's just kind of babbling on. And, and it, it completely loses me from the jump. Not only that, but when... When he's going, when they're saying, like, you have to prepare that food for Henwin, the kid goes, oh, it's always for Henwin. You know that he's preparing pig slop, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, like that's not, you don't want that. It's like, and, and to touch upon what you said, when Dalbin is speaking to nobody whatsoever and he's kind of talking out loud, that makes sense if you need a narrative. But this movie starts with a narrator. Right, right. So that's it's it's just very confusing from the from the jump. There's also Dalvin's cat, and initially I thought that's who Henwin was, and then you find out that there's also a pig. The, my favorite thing about that whole intro sequence with uh, with Dalvin though was he talks about the Horn King like a guy he hates at work. <laughs> He's <laughs> yes. like, oh that. Dastardly Horn King. He stole my pens from my desk. Not, I haven't gotten them back. Yes. Oh, I'll get him. He ate my sandwich even though I didn't label it. He's going to pay at next year's Secret Santa. Yeah. <laughs> and like one of my notes that I have here, again, and it goes back to just very sloppy screenwriting, is literally, this is verbatim what I wrote here. I'm a half an hour in and need to look up the names of characters who have so far had plenty of screen time, like Fluter Flam and Creeper. There were just, there were, there was never really any introduction to some of these characters or even a throwaway line early on where they mentioned the names. Not only that, but there were some instances where characters who had their names shouted at them like several times, I still didn't catch on what their names were. I want Fluterflam to be a distant cousin of the Swedish chef. Fluterflam. Fluterflam. There's the, the, the line um, where, I forget, it's one of the fair people says, is all the burning and killing still going on? Like, yes. It sounds like it should be said comedically. Like it's so nonchalant. Yes. It, it's just... That could have been delivered a lot better. Yeah. I, I, a lot of the lines in here, I think had the potential to be, like, a combination of either really funny or really heartfelt, and, like, it just never hit that for me for a lot of things. Right, and and the last line that stood out to me as being very sloppy or, or something that just didn't make sense to me is um, at the end of the film, when they're looking to trade the cauldron back to the witches, 
um, the witches try to trade back the sword. And um, Taryn says, well, what would I do with a sword? I'm not a great warrior. Where have you been for the last 80 minutes where you did nothing but dominate with this sword and your exact words when they wanted it for the cauldron was, my prized possession? Yes. So, so now it's, well, what would I do with it? Really? Because you couldn't live without it a half an hour ago. It's extremely contradictory and such poor placement to come at the end of the movie when he's supposed to have had a full arc by then. Right. Plus, the entire whole idea behind that is you take one of the coolest aspects of the movie, you take the sword, and you keep it away from him for long enough that he talks about wanting it, but you never see him use it again. Right. So that, to me, was just the, the screenwriting being at times so poor really takes me out of it Mm -hmm. it's a pet peeve i have of any movie and so far for the most part the films we've talked about really haven't had this problem it's glaring in this movie right um really from start to finish the other thing that's that's really kind of uh jarring is the animation throughout yes. and which is an amazing thing because this film was the first animated feature to be used using computer animation right and at the time for its warts they said that technically this movie was significant and there are times where the animation in this is phenomenal and you can see where they used um the the computer graphics to the best of their abilities and it worked but there are other times where this movie just looks awful. There's such a disconnect for me. It's like I said before, I feel like aside from the script problems, the dialogue problems, I really feel like I'm watching three different movies because there is not cohesive animation throughout the whole thing. Like, for example, in Snow White, let's just take Snow White, for example, she starts off at a castle, she goes through the woods, she goes to a cottage. You still know that you're in the same world. Even though you're in three different settings, the animation still looks the same, it looks consistent. Here, you start off on the cottage, when you get to the castle, it looks like a completely different film, and at the end, like there's just a lot of sloppy animation too when that castle crumbles. Yeah, I mean, there were parts where the frames move and the colors are splotchy. And there are some points where it looks like like the cells were scratched. Oh, I didn't even catch that. There, I didn't catch that There are all. parts that when they're panning, um, there's a scene I'm trying to remember. And you know what it is? It's when the three of them get captured for the second time by the horned king. And he's like, and you, a broken down minstrel. And he's explaining them and it's panning them. It looks as if the cells are scratched. Oh, wow. Like, really wow. looks awful. That's a nice catch, because usually that's, like, the first thing I'm picking apart and if something doesn't technically look right. When Gurgi and Taryn go to the Horned King's castle for the first time, the clouds, those red clouds behind them, are so impressive, but the animation cells of the characters in front of them look terrible, just rough edges, and they look like they don't belong there at all. In a weird way, it's kind of like a reverse of like what made Who Framed Roger Rabbit so good. 
right. where you wow. have two different types of animation side by side, and it's jarring in the difference between them. Like, in the, the one scene that's really obvious to me where they use the computers was when uh, he starts actually using the cauldron. Yes. Right. And you see the, the green fog emit from it. You just, the cells of just the cauldron itself look really impressive. Almost it looks like it was rotoscoped, mm -hmm. but it was like a lot clearer. Like this came out around the same time as the heavy metal movie. And I got a feeling, I got the feeling for some of the shades and the, and the darkness and stuff like that, that they did when the car is falling from outer space in heavy metal, like that same type of rotoscope, like crazy animation. But it looked a lot clearer in here in the moments where they actually used it. And that's really great. But then in the exact next scene, you have that green fog following on top of really dimly colored cells. Right. Right. Like it wasn't like, it's almost like it was watercolored. And oh, then yeah. they were like, and throw computers at it, science. The shadowing in this movie was terrible. I'm wondering, to touch on what you said, if that's a case of what this was, is that they were so excited or obsessed to start using the computer and the sound too. This was the first time I believe they did, was it the surround sound? Mm -hmm. Um I'm wondering if they got so caught up in the technical elements of it that they kind of lost, you know, what Disney is known for doing best. I think adding computer generated effects didn't ruin what they had for the Disney feel, but I feel like they were trying to shove a gimmick at you. Yes. Right. I feel yes. Like, it's like it's like in like in the third movie of every horror franchise, <laughs> they go 3D for no reason. And that's what it felt like to me. It felt like we have computers now. We're Disney. Blah, and they just throw it at you regardless of whether or not it actually makes sense or it's needed. And in that same sense, I have a feeling that's where they probably added like 10 million dollars to the budget. Ladies and gentlemen, it's analogies like that why we keep Pat around. <laughs> One, once every like two months. How long has it been since we actually been seen face to face? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's impressive, uh, or not impressive, but it's interesting that you mention uh, this being the first time that they used Dolby uh, and how maybe they got a little carried away with the technical aspect and they were very primitive, didn't really know how to use it because one of the other notes that I have and something that I always... In in every viewing of this movie that I've had that, again, is jarring for me, is the audio overlay does not sound natural at all. No. I, I almost feel at times like I'm watching a video game, not that I'm watching a film. Mm. Like, it just, it just stands out as not being natural at all. I'm not going to lie. The first comparison that I made about this movie in my own mind, Dragon's Lair. Yeah. Like, I, f I got a huge Dragon's Lair feel from it. Except, you know, without the comedy and the characters and the stuff that makes Dragon's Lair fun. Yeah. <laughs> the the overall good things. Yeah. <laughs> it does feel like at certain points some characters are yelling and some are whispering and they're equidistant in the frame from where you would imagine the camera to be. Yeah. It's not a case of, you know, foreground, middle ground, background. The scene where they're like, like right after they escape from the dungeon and they're all in the woods together and they have that dumb out of nowhere argument. 
where they split up for no reason and then get back together right away like five seconds later. That audio sounded so like off to me when they were talking. Yeah, and that actually that's the scene that I was thinking of as well. They're all in frame at about the same distance from each other and yet it's all it's all over the place. It sounds like one of them is so much farther in the distance and the rest of them are having an argument close together. Yeah, it uh again, so many things about the movie that didn't work, but it it, it kind of ruins the fact that otherwise and we'll get to the characters in the in a moment the root of the movie is not bad at all. It has a clear beginning, middle, and end. It has motivation. Almost every character is motivated by something. It has a phenomenal villain. But what kills this movie in the end is, at times, unwatchable animation, bad audio, and the fact that this movie, at the end of the day is just too damn scary for kids. And this is the stuff that they didn't cut out. Right. Right. There's there's 12 minutes of this movie on the cutting room floor. That gives me a headache. And Katzenberg, Jeffrey Katzenberg was the one that went into an edit bay and just You don't. and just started lopping things. You don't do that. You can't. He's he was convinced that you could, but you just can't. And that's why there's there's lapses in the story. There's lapses in the soundtrack because he just sliced apart a finished product. That's what's infuriating to me. You're not making a movie to edit. And I understand that they brought him in to save the Disney studios because he was a Hollywood producer. But like it doesn't apply to animation. You don't make a film and do, you know, however many extra thousand drawings only to cut them out. You you draw so that you can shoot it. That's it. It it's edited in the process. It makes me nuts. Yeah, it. Uh, and that footage is like lost to time, right? We're never gonna see that again. Right? I no, I don't. I don't think it's ever been released. Um, I've never seen it myself. It's at least, at the very least, not on this DVD because I looked. I wanted to see if there was any kind of like behind the scenes footage, any any kind of extra insight that I could use to research for the episode. There is nothing. The extra features on the DVD are a trailer where all they can talk about is the Dolby surround sound. And I think, is it a short film or something else not pertaining to the Black Cauldron? It, at was, all? it was a Donald Duck trick-or-treat cartoon. I'm not going to lie. That probably, if that was thrown in at the end of the version I saw, I probably would have jumped it up a couple of stars in rating. For <laughs> if anyone does know, though, where to find any of the cut Black Aldrin footage, please enlighten us. Please get at us on social media because I would love to see what was cut from this movie. Yeah. Um, a few other things that stood out as I'm, I'm kind of rereading my notes here. Um, things that that I don't want it to make it sound like I'm totally shredding the movie apart, but these are the things that, in my opinion, just make the movie such a disappointment. For example, um, when we see Princess Alanway for the first time, she comes up into the room where uh, Taryn is being held, and she she opens a trap door, and she comes up, she's like, she's looking in one direction and goes, did... Uh, 
I I thought I heard a noise, and it's like again, but it's 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 a it's a combination of your very bad one hundred one vanilla dialogue. In addition to the fact that she pops up and looks in one direction and concludes that there's nothing there, even though she thought she heard a noise, but she didn't take the time to actually look around the room. How did she make it that far? Well, that was the other thing that I had written down. How are these prisoners able to go room to room? Like, yeah. they're not. Where did you come from? Like, you're not really imprisoned if you're able to go anywhere that you want. It's not as if. It's not as if she used any of her powers. If she used somehow had used her powers to open a locked door or go through a wall or makes make a window appear, something. Yeah. The walls didn't even have chains on them in the dungeon. I don't know if you noticed that. I there did. was nothing to actually hold prisoners in place and there were no guards outside to watch them. They right. just basically threw them in a room and were like, okay, breakfast is at seven. And uh, <laughs> if you need any towels, let us know. It was like being in a white collar prison. It was, it was like being at a day's end. <laughs> <laughs> they are chained later, but it's not in the dungeons. When no, Gurgi comes back to untie them. They were but tied. That's, yes, they were tied. Ropes. Right. And he unties the knots and that's it. You're the horned king. Spend some money. Buy some chains. Yeah. <laughs> of um, your dungeon. When Alan when Alanway sees the rats, she gets like freaked out by them and goes, "I don't mind the rats." It's like, what? There's just so much inconsistency in this movie. No, and then when she sees Taryn, she's like, "Oh, I'm escaping. You can come if you want." Well, obviously he's gonna want to. And wouldn't you need help? I mean, I can appreciate that they went that they opted not to do the damsel in distress thing and she is trying to get herself out of the situation. And this is a movie that predates, you know, we've talked about Little Mermaid and later on Frozen, it's predating some of your stronger princesses. But why wouldn't you team up with the other prisoner to try and escape or overthrow the Horn King or just do something to get yourself out of the situation? She also didn't really seem to mind her situation. She was kind of like, I'm just kind of wandering through, and if you don't mind helping me get out of here, that'd be cool. If not, I'll, I'll find my own way, like whatever. But it's not like confident. It's yes. like it's like almost like an airheady like way of doing it. It's just like I'm sure there's an exit somewhere. Like, oh well, I'll see you later, I guess. That was kind of my first impression of her. Actually, was that she's been in this castle for a long time and has kind of just accepted her fate. I think that's like at least two of the minutes that were cut from the movie. <laughs> right. Um, and this is probably the last dancing girl you'll ever see in a Disney film. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we didn't talk about her yet. Um, yeah, she spins her dress. Her dress comes up way above her hip. You see an awful lot. And um, let's just say that they really played up on her physical stature. Yeah, this is the scene when we first enter into the Horn King's castle, which then this is another place where the movie feels completely disconnected to me. Aside from the ca the fact that the castle doesn't look anything like the world that we're in, they're drawing I I almost feel like we're in like Tortuga in Pirates of the Caribbean at the same time there's like dragons in the corner and there's a little goblin and this dancing girl and I was like Pick one thing and stick with it. It's it's not 
pirates. It's not gypsies. It's not medieval. It's just everything mashed together. It was so confusing. And yes, then you see this voluptuous woman dancing on a table, and she's just kind of putting it all out there. That being said, it did look like a fun party. You know, that, <laughs> of all the things, you're right, it was a mishmash of genres in terms of what their attire was and universes in which they looked like they should have belonged in and everything kind of thrown together. With that said, listen, I'm not offended by, by the dancing girl. No, no. I think that she made sense for those guys because those henchmen, that's the type of thing you would expect them to see. Drink beer, watch the dancing girl, and the lair itself. Sure. And actually, a lot of detail in the castle was impressive. It was not a bad set that they drew. They did have some really nice details and some nice colors that I thought made it look real. But then it would be something like, there's no chains, there's no shackles, and you can walk freely. Like, for every one thing that this movie did well, there was another stupid thing that negated it. I was trying so hard to pinpoint the little bits and pieces that I could tell that Tim Burton had a hand in. Yes. And here's the thing. I really couldn't. Like, maybe the interior of the castle. Like, the couple of instances where it was like, oh, that's kind of an oddly shaped pillar. Burton, yes. <laughs> and I'm stretching. That's a stretch. Yeah. Um, this movie was the first Disney film to not have musical numbers in it. In other yes. words, characters singing. But um, this movie has a phenomenal score. Phenomenal. I think yes. Elmer Bernstein, I think, is the composer's name. Yes. If this movie sounds like Ghostbusters, <laughs> you're on to something because he also wrote the score for Ghostbusters, which came out in 84. This movie came out in 85. What this movie accomplished with its music is the music went hand in hand with the animation very well to help drive the story yes. forward. There was never an instance where I felt like the music never matched the tone of the scene. Right? They, they, they did a very good job of matching what you're supposed to be seeing on screen with what the, the background was. That was the one thing that actually, I mean, obviously was intentional, but it was the one thing that came across cohesively. Well, I mean, they were really damn proud of that Dolby. Like you said, like in that <laughs> entire trailer, that's all that they talked about. It pretty much. They talked. We'll about post it the trailer on our social media. Um, they, they talked about it a lot of all the things that you would be, uh, focused on it. It kind of was a strange thing, but I guess at the time Dolby was cutting edge. It was brand new, and of course they're going to throw it out there that they've done it because they're Disney. You know, they're going to draw... Disney will always draw to attention the fact that they had the first feature-length animated film. This was another thing that they were going to throw out there because they're cutting edge and they're Disney and they do it better than everybody until you actually watch the damn movie. And you realize, no, you don't. in this case, you don't do it as well as everyone else. And, you know, I'll get, I'm not going to bury the lead. I'll give my final synopsis later. I'm trying to stay focused here. But there, there's so much that you can say about this movie. But I, I, we, we just have to move on. <laughs> we just have to move on. Otherwise, we should just end the show now. <laughs> we just got to move on from this. All right. Well, we've we've talked about plot. We've talked about setting. Uh, I'm ready to rip into some of these characters. Yeah, uh, do it. We, we've got on uh, Alanway a little bit. Um, let's talk about Taryn because I find him insipid. From the moment we meet him, um, you know, I was really hoping that it was going to be kind of like a sword in the stone. So 
a sword in the stone type of story where he kind of finds like this inner strength and doesn't really believe him in himself, but is able to become heroic. And it is completely the opposite with this kid. He just wants all the glory and wants to work for none of it. And he looks like Peter Pan. And that's so distracting. I, I think the most distracting thing for me was like, I can actually, I can't count on one hand anymore. How many movies I've seen with a farm boy who finds a magical sword. <laughs> you know what I didn't understand about that either? And and it's another swing and a miss. That sword could have been picked up by anybody and did what it did. There was nothing right. special about him. If it would have been like a sword in the stone, right? right. Where it was a certain character that needed a, either a certain motivation or a certain quality about him or herself, the only person that could wield that powerful sword. Anybody could have picked that up and used it. I think the movie would have been 20 times more interesting if the Horned King had had that sword first. Yes. Like, imagine if he was the original owner of the sword and the sword itself, because the sword obviously kind of moves on its own. It has its own ideas about what it should be hitting. Imagine if the sword escaped from the Corn King and found the boy and was like, this guy, I want to help this guy now. Like the wand chooses you. See, again. <laughs> Wrong franchise. <laughs> Wrong franchise, but you're picking another poor boy who's going to grow up because he <laughs> picks up something magical. <laughs> I'm just very happy that I've made it this far without calling Hedwin Hedwig. I did the entire movie. <laughs> um, yeah, but even or sugar daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I was even thinking too. You know, we're talking about Taryn having an inner strength. There was a moment where, after the Horn King gets Hedwin, uh, that he forces her to use her oracle powers and she won't. She's not able to do it when she looks into the, you know, whatever water it is. So I thought maybe Taryn was actually the one with those oracle powers and that Dalbin was kind of using Hedwin at first to make him believe in himself. And to me, that would have been a cooler movie. You know, they foreshadowed um, Taron in the beginning, almost like Luke Skywalker. Well, he's young and ambitious, and he doesn't know his power. He has no power. That's the thing. They they foreshadow it like he's going to be something special, like a Jedi or an Oracle himself, like you said. It never pays off. Like, nothing no. ever comes of it. Right, and then when he's finally in the position for it to pay off and to own... I guess realize his destiny. He's like, nah, I don't want it. Yeah, there's there's almost nothing endearing about him, and I feel like it could have been anyone. I feel like that might have been intentional, and I feel like it might have been a situation of like anybody watching this. If this kid can do it, you can too. But another part of me is thinking, but why him specifically? Like one of my favorite things about the the intro of this movie, like I, I this is one of the things that made me laugh like so hard was the kid can't fight off a goat. <laughs> yes. But the Horned King is coming his way, and the old guy goes, this is the only guy who can save this pig. <laughs> you need to get out of here. Yes, and we need to bring Henwin to safety at the edge of the Forbidden Forest. That sounds very safe, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's just past Mount Doom. <laughs> through the deserts of decrepitness. 
right before the pit of sorrow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just like it doesn't make sense. But then he keeps to your point, he keeps losing Hedwin. He loses her what, three times? It, it, almost All immediately. Right. Yes. All right, four or five of the times that he misses Hedwin, it's because a pterodactyl grabs him. Okay. You know what? I'll let that slide. If a pterodactyl grabs my pet, the the pterodactyl deserves it. Like that's 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 a a, a very vindictive animal. It knows what it's doing. <laughs> Speaking of the pterodactyl attack, we did have another Disney first. I don't know if you guys caught this. Um, when they're going after Hedwin and Taryn kind of tries in a last ditch effort to save Hedwin, um, he ends up with a bloody lip. Yep. And I don't think we have ever seen before or since blood in a Disney movie. Probably not. Maybe no. that was what Burton did. Maybe that was the big contribution. It was very bright. It could have been stylized. He literally walked in and was like, that kid should be bleeding. And then he walked out. Where's my check? <laughs> literally walked out after this Tim Burton pieced on Disney. No, I think Disney pieced on Tim Burton. I just realized, and I swear I'll get off the pterodactyls again in a second, but I just realized that that was a scene from Gravity Falls where a pterodactyl grabs a pig and flies off with it. And if that wasn't an homage, because it was on Disney Channel 2, there's got to be a reason why that was just, like, subconsciously added. Wow. And a Disney Channel reference. I'm very impressed, Pat. Thank you. You get to stay. Yay. <laughs> um, we'll keep you. Uh, we talked about Alanwe. Yeah, again, you know, she, she sort of seems just content i mean obviously we know she's got power that's why the horn king captures her because he's looking at her as a tool that can help him find the black cauldron that he needs to bring back the cauldron born but otherwise there's nothing really that special about her again a character that's not all that endearing she's sort of okay with the situation that she's in interestingly enough Haley mills read for that part yeah. and they did not cast her I don't know why, because Disney had a huge thing for Haley Mills in the 60s. Could it have been that she sounded too old? I'm not sure, because they never actually say how old she is or how old Taryn is. I think we're like meant to um, believe that they're somewhere in like the 15, 16-year-old range, but yeah. they never come out and say it. Right. Uh, but this was, I mean, we're talking about Haley Mills being fully grown i would say almost middle-aged and this was way after parent trap right yeah. um let's talk about the one character that i do actually find endearing in this movie i love me some gurgi um i think that he's kind of the heart of this movie pat is making faces no keep going keep going <laughs> um there is a little bit of a disconnect because he does run at the first sign of trouble and at the end he is the one to sacrifice himself to destroy the Black Cauldron. Um, and he does sort of give his life for his new friends. He is the only one who's willing to do it and just jumps into the cauldron. Um, so the disconnect for me, I find it really endearing that he sacrificed himself. But to me... It, the audience kind of falls in love with him. He hasn't really done anything else to make any of the other characters appreciate him until after he's gone. That is his one act. And it didn't come too little too late because he's ultimately what saved them. But when he goes to do it, 
none of them really, except for Taryn, try to stop him because he hasn't won them over. Well, I mean, that's that's sort of a character arc moment, though, for him. And that needs to exist. I think that Gurgi... Gurgi's necessary in this movie because you needed something cute and funny that the younger kids could watch and appreciate and enjoy. And you needed that kind of lighthearted fare to take away from the fact that this movie is extraordinarily scary. It is extraordinarily dark. And bloody. Yeah, I think that for for the younger kids, you needed that. And I'm sure that Disney was also thinking stuffed animals. Oh, for sure. And then Pat has something to say about Gurgi. Go I got something to say. I think Gurgi might be my least favorite Disney character ever. I know that's a strong statement to say, but honestly, like, watching him, I just, like, I could not get into anything that happened with him on screen. I felt like he was annoying. I felt like he was distracting from a lot of instances. And in a movie that is, you say that, like, they needed the cute characters. They needed this. You were bombarded with side characters whose only job was to make a quick laugh. You had the entire fairy tribe. You had everybody who they came into contact with who was a villain who was not terrifying. You had the the witches. You had everybody else who could tell a joke. You could have made the, the pig have a little bit more screen time, and that could have been the cuddly thing that you make a stuffed animal out of. Even if she didn't talk. Yeah. Um, also, and I'm just going to do this once, stupid fat hobbitses! I hate his voice <laughs> so much. I love it. The crunchings and munchings. Yeah, yeah, no, no. You nailed it, though. Gurgi's crunchies and munchings. You know why? Because I was doing Gollum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is true. He even, he, scream, he screams master in that voice. He yeah. is Gollum. I knew he reminded me of something. Yeah, that's that's it. You hit it right on the head. And it. it's not like a sense of like, well, I'm just comparing this to like Gollum now. Because there were... In the 70s, there were the Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings movies. And Gollum was in that. So they had something to go off of. It wasn't the same voice. It wasn't the voice, but it was the same character. Right. He's basically a furry Gollum without the split personality. Right. And he's not really a dog. He's not really... I'm, I'm not sure what he is. I think he's some kind of like troll they refer to him to. Yes, but he's he's basically like a dog with hands. Pretty much. Yeah. What it, could it be a crossing of worlds? Could he be Gollum before Rogaine? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, Pat hit on the witches, and I want to talk about them a little bit because mm-hmm. we were talking about the dancer in the castle, and to me, as far as you know, I don't find that offensive in any way, but as far as, far as the level of appropriateness, shall we say, for a Disney movie, the dancer was nothing compared to these thirsty witches. <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. Yeah. yeah. That, okay. The one witch, forgive me, I didn't bother learning any of their names. Um, she goes after our buddy Flim Flam. And... He he carries he's a minstrel. He flim carries flam. Yeah. Flim, flim, <laughs> fluter flam? Yes. Flim flam. I like flim flam better. 
I made it this far. Like I said, I didn't also call the just, pig Hedwig. Now he's we're, we're switching gears to Flim Flam. Just to prove my point, though, she said Flim Flam, and I went, yeah, that's that guy's name, right? Yeah, yeah. you totally went with it. Nobody busted me on that. Um, so, yeah, he's a minstrel. He's got a harp, and the thirsty witch tells him that she wants to pluck his harp. Then she turns him into a frog, and he gets stuck in her cleavage. Yeah, I, but uh, it's like full on extreme close up of her cleavage for like a solid minute, and he's yeah. like bouncing back and forth they, in between them. Yeah, yeah. They, they were mobile, yeah. to say yes. the least. <laughs> I was... Somebody spent months animating that Burton. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, you're right. It's another. It's another scene, and it's another thing where you're looking at this and you're going, "You're Disney, like you." You you have made a legacy building these these stories and these films that are family friendly. It's like when they when when uh when Taryn refuses to use Henwin's powers and the uh the Horn King says to kill her and they put her on a bloody chopping block. It's like I don't mind. Don Bluth could have done this, but what is Disney thinking? Like, I know at, there have been a lot of times when Disney has tried to get away from princesses because they're trying to hook a male audience. And I know that for a time they had problems with that in film. They had a lot of problems with it in the parks. And that was uh, evident when Universal Studios opened up in Orlando and they were pulling the boys and they were pulling the tweens. And Disney was losing that. So they were trying to hook that audience. But, you know, you go from one extreme to the other. Like, there's there is no in-between in this movie. And you just look at this and go, you're Disney. What are you thinking? Well, there was an in-between. That's where the frog was. Well, yeah. But that's not the in-between you needed. <laughs> it was in-between something. It was in-between a rock and a hard place. But the... The thing that I think when, when you're talking about that thing, you know, when you're talking about how they had the, the chopping block, like how dare, how could Disney like put that and think it was okay? Their first animated movie, they had somebody cut out the heart of a pig and go like, yep, that's a woman. That's exactly what I said. Yeah. Yeah, but they don't, you don't actually see the heart. Yeah, but they still describe it enough. Yeah, but I, I'm just saying there's the difference between describing something and af- actually seeing a blood-stained chopping block sure fair enough that's that's my point there were a few well there were a lot of things in this movie where it just didn't feel like a disney film in all of the bad ways not in all of the good ways who framed roger rabbit doesn't feel like a disney film in all the right ways the rocketeer does not feel like a disney film in all the right ways guardians of the galaxy perfect example does not feel like a disney film in all of the right ways this movie, though, it's it's a complete stark contrast to all of those other examples. And that's why it's part of the reason why the movie bombed the way that it did. Before we get into the bombing, though, um, we got to finish talking about some of these characters. That's what I was saying, because I haven't talked about the Horn King yet. Yeah. Yeah, I I love the Horned King. I think by contractual obligation, I have to like everything that John Hurt is in. Uh, he was hands down the best part of this movie. Yeah, he his animation was really cool, scary but cool. Yeah, he he had a great look to him, 
And I love how he had those dead black eyes until he got really animated and they turned red. Yes. I thought that that was a really, really nice touch. And I think that John Hurt played him well. I think he had the best lines in the movie. I think he was by far the best character in the movie. I think that he was somebody, and we've talked about it um, in regards to some of the other films that we've done, where you have a character that has had very little screen time, and they haven't said too much about them, but you get a feeling for exactly who they are and what their motivations are the minute that you see them. He works very well in that aspect. I think a lot of it has to do with his voice. A lot of it has to do with his presence. The fact that the the minions just immediately like combination of fear and respect. Like when it comes to him, they don't they're not terrified of his presence, but they are like willing to hear what he has to say. Like I like the idea of that. And also like when we're talking about when we talked before about the uh, the how how they're all like gathered around and you got all these different types of characters as his minions. You've got the goblins. You've got the humans. You've got all the things. I like the idea that it it wasn't all, like, clones of the same, like, evil thing. It felt like these were, like, villagers who were like, I believe this guy. Like, I want to follow this guy. Almost in, like, a Walking Dead sort of way where it's, like, out of fear, you just kind of go with it. The way that Negan gained his following. You, You literally took the words out of my mouth. I am Negan. Oh, my God. Well... This is interesting because you know that I love me some Disney villains. I kind of disagree with everything. Um, I didn't love the animation. Uh, I felt it was not... I I feel like it was connected to the film. I didn't feel like he was completely out of place. But to me, he he just doesn't look like a Disney villain. And... um, you know, I think a lot of the things that made him scary were based on the reputation and the fear from his minions. And for a movie that really, really went for it, like we're talking about seeing blood and things like that, I kind of wanted to see why he is so feared. They talk about it, but other than raising this army of the undead, I really wanted to see him like hurt someone or something to to like really go for it and show me why he's supposed to be so scary. So like it just didn't do it for me. I didn't find him menacing at all. I felt, you know, like his one little goblin minion creeper. Yes. He I mean, he was probably what drove the point home the most that you're supposed to fear him because he's like master's always blaming me I'm being punished blah 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 but like you never actually see it carried out and that took away any scare factor for me I think the biggest problem with that is that like they did build him up to be like this great crazy leader he was strong he was in insanely powerful you saw him raise a dead army for three minutes and that's the only thing he did like, the rest of it was based about, like, you know, like, smoke and mirrors about who he was. I would have liked to have seen the skeleton army, like, go into a village. Yeah. And do something. They didn't make it past the bridge. Well, here's the other thing. You're this great, powerful leader. Who do you have watching the cauldron? No one. Nobody was there. That was a massive oversight to me. Right. Um, The, uh... Well, part of it, too, as you had said, like you wish you would have seen more. Um, A majority of the 12 minutes that ended up on the cutting room floor in this movie was when the cauldron born 
was brought back because when they did test screenings of this movie, they said that children were literally screaming and crying. And they said that children were running out of the theater. They were so scared because when you see, and you can hear a lapse in the soundtrack, when you see um, the cauldron born jump on the henchman and it cuts away, there's an entire scene where they are mauling the henchman. And at one point, they they vaporize them. Like, it, it was an incredibly violent scene that got trimmed down to not scare these children quite as much. So that aspect was there in regards to the henchmen. You're right, they didn't make it past the drawbridge, they didn't make it into a village, but even if they had, we never would have seen it. Look, this is me saying this. I'm not saying you need to traumatize children. <laughs> Which is a lot coming from you. I'm but, so glad we have that recorded. But at the same time, you don't have to show somebody's flesh being torn from their body in order to have a scary image. Have, have the skeleton slash some stuff off screen and ha- hear some bodies dropping. Have, so, have some quick cuts. Just show it, them like breaking through people's houses and have people screaming. That's scary enough. You don't need you don't need to show maiming and dismembering to make something scary. A lot of times it's what's in your head. Well, here's the call to action. Let's do the live action remake, Disney. Let's see it. Let's um, see it play out. Funny you should mention that. No, stop. Uh, they did recently, I think it was in 2016, they rebought the rights to yes. the story, and they're thinking about making it into a, into a series. Wow. Very interesting. I want to talk about that in a minute. I, I, I thought you were going to tell me it was announced. I was like, how did I miss no. this? There was one thing about Gurgi that I didn't get a chance to mention. Um, and it it comes uh, when he has that that character arc moment. And there's something about this that's very bothersome to me. And I am going to say this as a disclaimer. I'm not saying this to upset anybody. I'm not saying this to sound insensitive because obviously... It is a very serious um, topic. It's a very serious situation, especially if you know somebody who has actually gone through this. But Gurgi's sacrifice seems less of a sacrifice and more of a suicide. And yes. because of the way he describes it, and it totally has a shift in feel where the movie goes from being dark to being sad. And because Gurgi, Gurgi, you know, as he's standing on the edge right before he jumps in, um, Taryn is saying, I need to do this. It needs to be me. We need to stop him. If I don't do this, we're all going to die anyway. Like, he's willing to, to sacrifice mm. himself. And Gurgi, instead of coming up and saying, you know, you, you've done so much for me. You've been my friend. I need to save you. Let me do this. Instead, he goes, you have many friends. Gurgi has no friends and then he jumps like it it does have a feeling less of I'm doing this for the greater good and more of I want to end my life yeah I know that that's not what they were that wasn't their intent but that's how it came off and it's it was upsetting like I don't have it's any other heart wrenching I'm not gonna lie that also kind of that that whole thing made me feel like well, does Gurgi not feel like he made a strong enough connection with these people? Right. Or does he just is he just being sad for like what he had before this all happened? Like it's very confusing to me. 
Right, especially because he'll tell you that he had nothing before and that he had no friends. Yeah. Right, and I don't know if this is like a massive oversight or if it is just a case of poor dialogue because they could have played the scene out where Taryn said something to the effect of, well, where are your friends now? And really tried to stop him or made it more about you know, like you were saying, he Taryn does say, I, I'm the hero, I have to do this. But Gurgi could have even gone the route of, no, you need to be here and be the hero. They can't lose you. But instead, yeah, that was a really, really odd choice. Uh, this is going to sound kind of harsh, but in any movie where they have a character who, like, makes a huge sacrifice and it's, like, this huge, like, almost, like, movie-ending decision... And then at the end of the movie, they go, we know we said there's no way that he can come back from this, but that's because we haven't tried. And then he comes back in like five seconds. Right. Like, I felt like it was cheap. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I was happy that he lived at the end of the day, but you're right. That That's a very, a very valid point. And you're right. It does cheapen what he did do when it does, it, you know, in a sort of way cheap, you know, it cheapens the rest of the movie. It almost makes it very predictable. Not only that, but the Horn King went into the cauldron as well. Does that mean that he can come back anytime the witches decide, eh, screw it, let's just make things more interesting again? I feel in a way that it could have just been up to the witches the entire time, the way that they come back at the end. Yeah. Like, I feel like this whole thing just could have been resolved by going to them in the first place. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And the fair people serve absolutely no purpose in this movie. No. That's where I'm saying three different movies. Th- yeah. That felt like the third one. I didn't necessarily dislike the world that they were living in, but it just didn't fit this movie at all whatsoever. No, and and it didn't it didn't make any sort of sense. You're right. That's where it did feel like three completely different movies. Um, interesting that you mentioned that they're considering doing a... Uh, a remake of this and turning it into a series. I'm surprised that Disney would have even considered doing anything like this, given what a bomb this was and what a, what a black eye this is mm-hmm. in the history of the company. However, I do think that for the right audience. And I also think that in this day and age, let's be real. We're a more cynical society now than we were. And kids at 10 years old are the way kids were at 15, 16 years old when this movie came out. Like, everything is just much more mature and very different. So in maybe it would work. If I, done the right way with the, with a good director, proper effects, good script, maybe this works as a remake. I think now would be a better time for this story to come out for a couple different reasons. First of all, like, I don't know if you know the exact figures for how much money Disney lost on this. Please. Uh, the budget of the movie was $44 million. Oof. They made back $21.3 million. <gasps> they lost $22 plus million plus on this one movie. And that's why they said it was the movie that almost killed Disney. Yeah. Like, they almost shut the studio down because if, of what a bomb this if was. If Great Mouse Detective hadn't made as much money as it had, Disney Animation probably would have gone completely out of business. Also, like, I don't know if you know this. In the mid-80s, there was, like, kind of a fantasy movie overload. I, I made a quick list here. Just from 1984 to 1986, so giving it like a year in both directions, here's what this was coming out around the same time as. The NeverEnding Story, Sword of the Valiant, 
Warrior and the Sorceress, Lady Hawk, the Dungeon Master, Return to Oz, Wizards of the Lost Kingdom, Miyazaki's Castle in the Sky for the anime fans, Highlander, and Labyrinth all came out within two years of each other. And when did, so, when did the Dark Crystal come out? Dark Crystal came out in like... 70s, I thought? I was going to say early 80s, but I have no frame of reference But with it. safe to say probably within five years of this release. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, in 87, we also got Princess Bride. That, I was going to bring up Princess so Bride as the other one. So it is very fitting of the yeah. time. But that's the thing. There were so many of these movies coming out at once that Disney felt like they were bandwagon hopping. Sure. It felt like, all right, well, they're kind of fantasy-ish, and I don't know when the hell Willow came out, but maybe we'll do like a little Willow thing. Also, like, like nowadays, fantasy movies are a lot more mainstream accessible. Mm-hmm. Harry Potter changed a lot of that. Sure. Where it's like, okay, like this is a wizarding school, but all right, maybe we'll get into some, some orcs and stuff. Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. Never should have worked. <laughs> like, in, in the history of film, there's no reason why Lord of the Rings should have worked. But it created a new climate for fantasy movies and fantasy TV series. Look at Game of Thrones. I think Black Cauldron in some sort of way or the entire Chronicles series could work as its own thing now. I wonder if instead of doing a movie, maybe they do like a series for the new streaming service. Yeah, that would certainly be an interesting look. And and it it would be intriguing to see them use that as as original content to get the to get the service off the ground i wonder if this film will even be available on the streaming service i would imagine that they would probably do it because i think they're going to put all of their animated classics on there and yes this is considered one of the animated classics well now it is um but it was at the time that was it was in the same line of of all the other films it's not an opinion that it's an animated classic they released it to go hand in hand with all the other films with sleeping beauty and snow white and the jungle book they they had said these are animated classics and they knew they had them coming out every other year and this was supposed to be the next big animated classic so i would imagine that they're going to have that full library up there um and i also feel like they're going to say here's here's how we did it here's how we made it better if they go ahead and do this mini series or if they do a complete remake of the film it would be very interesting and it might work it might actually work for this modern audience i mean i'm of the opinion you produced it you put it out there now stand behind it so i would think that it is going to be up there on the streaming service but i would love to see like a documentary on the making of and what the mentality was behind this. Like I I want everything. I want a whole companion piece. If they are going to choose to do uh, something with the rights to this book. Right. And you know, you, if if they're going to do anything with it, they better get one really great pig actor. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) (laughs) Final synopsis on the film. Jackie, I'll let you go first. Uh, So does it hold up? That's a hard no from me. Okay, but what about the rest of the film? I mean, give us your synopsis on the movie in totality. In totality, it's disconnected. I I disagree with you where you say there were things that they tried to do right. Just nothing really works for me. So it's not even a question really of does it hold up. It's not even, it's not like it's a has been, it's a never was. Pat? This is legitimately like, I've only seen this movie maybe three times. Um, when I was a kid, I remember seeing the trailer for it and as a kid going, I don't need to watch that. 
But Dolby surround. Yeah. Ten-year-old Pat was a little bit more concerned with watching Hunchback of Notre Dame for the 50th time. Um, the whole movie as a whole, like, I can't really appreciate it as much as I probably should have because I didn't watch it as a kid. But that being said, if I watch it now, it's got this huge disconnect between tone. Some of the characters are interesting. Some of the visuals are really amazing. It kept my interest for the whole time. But as a Disney standard, it falls way below what it should. If I were to give this film a one-word description, that word would be frustrating. I think this movie is incredibly frustrating because, as I stated before, at, you know, at the risk of repeating myself at nauseum, for everything this movie did right, it did just as many things wrong, and... It's frustrating because this movie could have been so much more than it was, and it just didn't live up to what it could have been or what it should have been. The movie does not hold up. The animation does not hold up. Um, I will give the film credit. Um, animation from this point forward, using those computer graphics, certainly was a game changer. They definitely got it right as time went on. That's evident in The Great Mouse Detective. It's evident in Oliver and Company. It is absolutely evident in um, The Little Mermaid. And it is, it is no more evident in any other film when you talk about the traditional hand-drawn animation than in Beauty and the Beast, which was nominated for Best Picture. It is a visual marvel. Movies like that do not exist without a movie like The Black Cauldron. We can't overlook how technically significant the movie is. It was the first of its kind to do it. It didn't do it well, but it did pave a way. Walt, I know that you're passionate about this too, but you have to let me talk now. <laughs> Um, you, you can't overlook what the movie meant. Um, they didn't do it right, but it did set the table for the future. I, I don't like it. I don't dislike it. Um, I just wish it would have been more than it was. If they could have had everything come together, if the animation would have been clean, if the audio would have been clean, if the script wouldn't have had so many issues. I know it sounds like you could say that about any bad movie, yeah. but what separates this, and I stated it before, what separates this from other films, especially bad ones, it has that clear beginning, middle, end motivation and conflict. For a movie that is so well drawn out and is so clear in all of that, there's no excuse for it to be as bad as it is. And yet here we are. That's why this movie in all is frustrating for me. That's that's my opinion of it. Tell us how you really feel, Sean. No, I I do agree with what you said though, is that, you know, you couldn't have the later movies, you know, with what they learned about the computer animation without this one. But see, that's where I disagree. You shouldn't be putting out a movie like this as an experiment with it. You, you should have gotten it down first before you release something like this. Because it did, I will give you that too, it did have a lot of potential. Have you ever seen The Simpsons where they have the character Poochie? Yes. And his first episode is... They're driving to the fireworks factory, and they never get to the fireworks factory, but it's built up the entire time. This was an entire trip to the fireworks factory that we never saw the end of. 
It built up a lot of great stuff, but we constantly got distracted by stupid things. Mm-hmm. We were we were we were promised a great battle at the end. We were promised so much more from everybody. The Horn King doesn't throw a punch. The fairies have more screen time than the Horned King. Yeah. And that's with some of it cut. No, you're you're absolutely right. It 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 really just doesn't go anywhere. I mean, you're right. It does have a beginning and middle a beginning, middle and end, but it goes nowhere. It's uh it's it's just frustrating, dog. Please. Usually he's very quiet. This is the first time that he's ever tried to make a real cameo on this show. But it's I guess Pat. it's Pat. He it's hates, you. He hates what I have to say about Gergi. For news, do you mind if I jump in here? No, go, please. please. Okay. Uh, obviously, you know, because this counts. It's under the umbrella, but for Marvel. How caught up are you guys on the uh, the Marvel TV shows? Not at all. Okay. Well, you picked a great time to start because they're canceled. All of the major shows are canceled. Luke Cage and Iron Fist got the axe last week. I did hear about Luke Cage. Yeah. And here's the thing. When they when they announced that Iron Fist was being canceled, Walt agrees. Nobody cared. Iron Fist had, like, maybe three really great episodes in it, especially in the last season. It was really good. So when that got canceled, we were like, well, that's disappointing. When Luke Cage got canceled, it it did not go over well. Yeah, I know a lot of people who are upset because Luke Cage, and we haven't watched it, but supposedly is a really good show. It's fantastic. And um, it, it, it really was a bomb for a lot of people. I mean, I, I don't know if this is because they're planning on moving them to the streaming service. I was under the impression that those shows were staying on Netflix. The, the shows are going to stay on Netflix, but they had planned for a third season of both. And they're both not happening. We're still waiting on word of whether or not they canceled the third season of Jessica Jones. From what I could tell, that was in production right now, and I don't think they were going to cancel it outright. All right, Pat. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. It was a lot of fun to have you here in the studio. We're sorry the dog yelled at you. Eh, it's okay. You know, he, he disagrees with a lot of the stuff that I had to say. But before you get out of here, can you please give our uh, listeners a reminder again of where they can find you on the social? Besides our intro and outro. Oh, yeah, I did record that, didn't I? Yes, thank you again uh, for that. We love our great movie ride intro and outro. Thank you very much. Uh, I am on Twitter right now, at Pat Shred Shack. Uh, you could follow my YouTube channel. Uh, just look for The Shred Shack, where we've got uh, a whole bunch of uh, Halloween reviews going on right now into November. Uh, we got heavy metal reviews and all sorts of interviews and stuff. And you can check me out on Instagram at Pat Shred Shack as well. All right, excellent. Well, thank you again so much, everybody, for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week. We're excited for next week's episode. We're going to review Coco. Um, so please uh, make sure that you follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Monoreal Radio. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you guys. And please feel free to interact with us. We love hearing from you guys on social media. Oh, one other thing that I forgot to mention. Big news this week. We have an official partner which we are very excited about. Yes, we do. We are happy and excited to announce that Amazon has partnered up with Mono Real Radio. So if you need to go and watch any of these films or rewatch these films, if you go to the website, monorealradio.wixsite.com slash home, we have links to every single film that we have reviewed on the page direct to the Amazon instant video link. So for Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. (laughs) 
On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.